Hello there and welcome to the Tech Means Business Podcast. This is a weekly digest of conversations I have with interesting figures from the world of business and technology. Today I'm joined by Nick Mailer of Positive Internet. Nick's the co-founder and CTO of this company and it's based in London. It's got offices in New York and it runs its data centres for our 100% green electricity in Cambridgeshire here in the UK. Now I first came across Positive Internet um, at a, a live expo a few months ago. Uh, you probably remember those live expos. Um, but at the time I was struck by uh, the differences both between the company's branding and the people who were manning the stand and if you like the kind of rest of the exhibitors um, that I spoke to that day. And the more I investigated the company, the more I learned, the more interested I became. Uh, not only is the uh, company basically uh, running its operations with a zero carbon mentality, uh, but also it only really um, supports and supplies free and open source uh, software uh, and solutions for its many clients all over the world and has been doing so for a long, long time. But that's probably enough about me talking about the company. Um, perhaps Nick Mailer of Positive Internet, you'd care to introduce yourself and um, the company itself. Hi, I'm Nick and I'm the uh, global CTO and I was one of the co-founders of Positive uh, over two decades ago now. Um, same year as a little company called Google was founded. Only one of us has had to change our slogan, though, um, although another one of us has an extraordinary uh, amount of turnover. Um, I'll leave you guessing who's who. Uh, we decided that we were going to take a bet and focus entirely on GNU Linux and open source technologies. And remember, this is 1998, and this is actually the year that the term open source was introduced to talk about free software. So it was a little bit of a, a bet then. People were still calling it weird sort of hippie communist uh, viral nonsense that kids did in their back bedrooms but real men needed solaris and it it it, it we thought mm, there's something about this that we think is going to take off beyond even what some of the most optimistic proponents are saying now so let's build a company that has its roots in really taking these technologies seriously finding all the right geeks and building platforms that can make the most of it. So obviously, over those 21 years, we've seen the rollout of, of platforms like WordPress. We've seen the various frameworks come out. We've seen the progress of JavaScript and we've seen Microsoft change substantially. And we've always been able to be there just as these things are hatching and watch the chicks as they grow up. So it's been a very interesting time. Uh, in all that time, though, I still think that Pearl is the best. Uh, welcome, listeners, to Geek Wars. It's Pearl versus Ruby here. Um, interesting, but perhaps we should debate whether that Pearl should be written on Vim or Emacs. Well, uh, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I use Vim, but because we host uh, Richard Stallman's uh, website, uh, I should say Emacs, although... Richard Stallman's recently been cancelled, hasn't he? So uh, it doesn't matter anymore. Yep, it's taken a community of, well, just about everybody to um, tell him to shut the hell up. Anyway, uh, this <laughs> Linux yeah, stuff that you keep going on about, Nick, I think it's probably about time we talked about that and also about free and open software in general. So uh, let's take, uh, for instance, a boss in a, uh, an average workplace. He 
or she is paying for Windows licenses. They're paying for Microsoft Office 365 and, you know, clearly a load of uh, antivirus and anti-malware from McAfee or the like. Um, also paying monthly for Google Docs and so on and so forth, maybe a Dropbox account and might even be paying for, I don't know, something like SAP or uh, paying uh, for lots of Salesforce licenses. Why would this imaginary boss, for instance, one day switch away um, to rather more unknown alternatives, albeit free alternatives, um, like Linux, for instance? Well, what's interesting is those bunch of companies that you just described themselves are increasingly including in their offering and in their infrastructure Linux, which is fascinating. You talked about Google, of course, a completely Linux-based organization. You talked about Microsoft, who now include the Linux kernel in, I think, almost every version of Windows 10 that they distribute, uh, as well as a full Linux distribution on top of it, uh, Windows uh, subsystem for Linux and so forth. Uh, and all those other host applications generally have Linux about the mix. Uh, his phone, I presume, will be, if it, if it, isn't, window, if it isn't a Windows or a um, or an iPhone will be based on Linux, which of course is um, what Android runs on and so on. So the Linux kernel is everywhere and doing everything. And I think the question would have been more interesting maybe five, 10 years ago when desktop applications were still very important. Think about your average daily workload. How many very specific proprietary desktop applications do you still use? I have a text editor that I use, and I still tend to use um, a, an email client because I don't like webmail, unlike most people. Otherwise, I'm spending almost all my time in a web browser, uh, or, uh, which is peculiar to me, of course, a, a shell. But things like even word processors, people will usually share something in Google Docs, and if it has to be edited in Word because it has something proprietary about it, again, they use something like Office 365 to make the tweaks. So the, the, the old joke used to be, oh, uh, where, when's going to be the year of the Linux desktop? You know, because, of course, Linux the distribution doesn't usually take much market share from Mac OS or w Windows to actually create those desktop GUIs. But that's kind of not interesting anymore. Um, who cares about who's drawing the window frame anymore? It's what's inside that window, which is, of course, a, usually some sort of web browser or a major set of components made up of web technologies like HTML5. And those are predominantly these days free and open source software uh, based on WebKit, which, of course, let's remind us, where, where does Google Chrome's WebKit come from? Where does Safari's WebKit come from? And now, of course, Edge. Where does Edge's WebKit come from? Well, that started as something called KHTML, which was the basis of a web browser in a Linux desktop distribution called KDE. KDE created a web browser called Conqueror. Yeah, I should point K. out to listeners that every single element of the KDE desktop uh, begins with a K. So you have uh, Kindos and obviously a cursor and uh, close and and uh, Copen icons or Kaicons. Um, it's a bit of an affectation, but hey, we live with it. Exactly. Uh, and, and Conqueror's renderer was called KHTML. Apple 
you know, Steve Jobs had just come back, needed a quick and nice HTML and JavaScript renderer. They found KHTML, which was released under the GPL, and Apple then rebranded it as WebKit. But of course, Apple had to continue to release versions of it, uh, disgruntled as they were about it because it was under the GPL. Google Chrome then also took WebKit and used it, and now Microsoft have taken WebKit and used it for Edge. So when you say, you know, it's an interesting question. Since most of our lives are now on a web browser that is based on the technology that was released on a Linux desktop, maybe Linux did take over the desktop after all. I guess we're talking really about a Linux desktop by proxy, aren't we? Um, we're talking really about a web layer, um, which we see a lot of You know, when we uh, address whatever as a service, I guess, presented to us um, in a web browser. Um, it's fairly typical of web offerings. But what's actually going on on those servers that are creating those cloud offerings? Is everything running IIS, for example? IIS, <laughs> how cute. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, what then is running the server stack, as it were? The server stack, despite what the cool kids say, and all the containers and all that, we're still using the things we, we always use. We're using things like Nginx or Apache. We're using uh, various frameworks, usually based on things these days like Node.js. Uh, the cool kids had a bit of a run with Ruby on Rails. PHP is still very big, despite the fact that people are trying to suggest it isn't, using frameworks like Laravel and so on. And then you've got a bunch of orchestration technologies, uh, most of which are also free and open source software. And it all really runs under the open source and Linux paradigm. There are very few of these vibrant, agile technologies that actually are expected to work under Windows. The Umbraco, which is a free and open source um, content management system, which only runs under Windows, is the is the weirdo uh, counterexample to this. But they're very few and far between, um, which is why, of course, Microsoft Azure runs, I think, more Linux installations than it does Windows installations. Because really, unless you're a sort of pointy-headed corporation, you don't run a large amount of Windows stuff on the public Internet. It's just not done. It's silly. It's expensive and it's brittle. And you don't have the ecosystem to support everything. And indeed, Microsoft know this, which is why they're desperately bringing the Linux ecosystem into Windows with Windows, with uh, with the uh, Linux uh, sublayers and the integrations that they're doing. Yeah, that's something I really wanted to pick up on early in this conversation, Nick. We talked about uh, Linux, uh, if you like, running desktops, if not being the desktop environment of choice. And certainly, you know, you can now run a, a Linux desktop environment inside Windows using WSL2. You know, you can run a full, uh, I don't know, KDE environment if you want, actually inside the Windows uh, 10 environment and now shipped to standard. Microsoft have as well, yeah. of course, bought GitHub and various other bits and pieces um, of development frameworks and the like. But do you think really this kind of iHeart Linux ideal that Microsoft is espousing at the moment. Do you think that's more to do with competing against uh, Google's next big, big thing, which is probably, uh, at least in this space, uh, Fuchsia, which is kind of their drop-in replacement for uh, the whole Linux kernel and uh, Linux operating system? It's very difficult to know what to think about Fuchsia because the thing about Google is they, despite being a huge 
highly competent organization are also huge and highly incompetent. Look at the number of projects that they work on that just fall apart or go in all sorts of inchoate directions as their dev teams grow bored with them. So I couldn't bet Fuchsia one way or the other. I suspect it depends on whether somebody within Google was particularly interested in it this week or not. I mean, it went, well, it wasn't at first launched in 2016 as a, a test, and then they've kind of revivified it again in some form again, which you can still enable on some phones. Um, again, it's a uh, an open source operating system, but it's based on a more permissive license, well, or less permissive, depending on your philosophical side of the coin, than the GPL. Uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens with it. But whatever does happen with it, we still need to understand the huge investment in Linux technologies that go way beyond anything that, say, just Microsoft's done. I mean, IBM and all its big tin you rely on it. Um, You've got a huge number of instances running all these open source stack software uh, that, that we've talked about. It would be inconceivable and more importantly unnecessary for that to change because, of course, we're talking about open source software. So it's not like people are looking to jump from some horrible proprietary mess. Um, I can well understand that um, somebody if, uh, like, um, I don't know, Oracle, should be threatened in their current paradigm. I'm shocked that Oracle have managed to survive, frankly, and I think it's only because there are a large number of procurement people and very big blue chip organizations that don't quite realize how badly they're being fleeced. Once the next generation come along, though, who's going to opt for a big uh, Oracle inst installation, especially considering how badly Oracle are behaving in almost every respect, the way that they've dealt with their um, API lawsuits and things like that with, uh, with with Google, the way that they basically let the MySQL community down and so forth. So I would be more concerned about big lumbering proprietary organizations that still are hanging on by the skin of their teeth than I would about uh, the Linux kernel going anywhere. And again, as somebody who still likes using Perl, it kind of, I don't really mind what happens. You know, let's say that Linux drops by 20% of popularity or whatever. It's still a free and open source project. It can't be thrown in a cabinet somewhere and people can't be sued for using it as abandonware. So there'll always be somebody with the itch to scratch to fix it and so on. There are still people today who are developing free DOS, which is you know the MS MS DOS um, clone. So I don't think it's going to disappear. There are people who are working on Amiga DOS free and open source systems. So yeah, I was looking at uh, some screen grabs of Risk OS the other day, uh, which was running on a uh, you know a modern day Raspberry Pi, I think version four. I mean, it was real to me at least. That was a real blast from the past. Uh, and Risk OS, of course, probably being something that we both used at school. Um, Running on ARM, of course, an amazing success story. Um, and in fact, you know, ARM is very much an unsung hero, I think, in my in my estimation, at least. I mean, there are billions, literally billions of, of devices all over the world, you know, that run on ARM chips. You know, IIoT, IoT, um, phones, uh, tellies. I mean, just about, you know, every uh, piece of electronics that you turn to these days um, is running an ARM chip. 
or at least any common piece of um, technological hardware that isn't necessarily a you know x86 computer. They are, and, and what's 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 great about the ARM story is, you know, if you if you if you look at the, the people who created the ARM chip, they had to do it on the cheap, and they had to do it in a way that was cheap for them to fabricate, which is why they made it so efficient. It was a the typical British. Uh, organization doing something in the back of their potting shed kind of cutting corners to try and get things done and uh, they happened to stumble on something very brilliant in the corner cutting elegance so to speak so that's what's quite fun about I, I don't i don't think a big german conglomeration could have come up with arm because they would have been too well funded and too well organized now nick we're we're rapidly running out of time which is a massive shame i just wanted to talk uh, about positive internet the company that you founded uh, it's a zero carbon company which is very important uh, it's uk based and of course you know as we've discussed it's it's very strong on free and open source software uh, clearly for itself uh, but also for for its and, uh, and your clients um, do you see positive internet as being something somehow ahead of its time if you like so when we reach peak oil again or a new peak oil or i don't know some other damocles sword tipping point environmentally for instance that people are going to i know come around to a, um, to your way of thinking um again we 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 have i think done some things quite well and that is we've looked 10 years ahead of various trends and uh We've noticed where other people will be in 10 years, and we've decided to be there then. We did that with free and open source software, and I think we're doing that with green energy and green data centers as well. Um, the thing is, though, we, we don't actually tend to preach about it very much. When we're doing a sales spiel, we'll be much more likely to talk about uh, the fact that we'll be there at 3 in the morning to sort out your platform to look after applications so that you don't have to be up at three in the morning dealing with it. The fact that you know we can build a whole platform that can run in our data centers in the UK, be completely audited and so on, data sovereignty and all that, and we can handle all those security questions that you get sent in a, in a weekly manner and just take it off your hands. So that's usually what the sales feel is. And then at the end, we say, Oh, and by the way, your stakeholders will be very happy to hear that this whole thing also runs in 100% green energy at a data center that unusually has uh, set aside land for rewilding. And then they go, oh, actually, that is quite interesting. So we, we don't tend to foreground that. That tends to be the cherry on the top. Now, of course, if the aliens were watching us right now, they might say, what do you mean that's the cherry on the top? The cherry on the top is something that isn't going to destroy your planet. Um, but I'm not here to speak for the aliens. I'm here to speak for, uh, as Rich, as um, Rich and Stu used to say, uh, the businessman in his suit and tie, and that's what they want to talk about. But I think there's something in the air. I think people are realizing that they need to tick boxes. Now, it's still just ticking boxes, but it's not a box that's optional for many at the moment. Now, of course, with everything that's happening at the moment, and this podcast is being recorded uh, during the lockdown period here in the UK surrounding the coronavirus, the COVID-19 outbreak, 
um, there's a great deal more interest being placed on how data centres and how the big streaming services in particular are sourcing their electricity. I mean, one thinks obviously of the video conferencing platforms, but also there's you know the whole consumer area of uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime and the like. So I think people are very much more interested in you know how these systems are being powered, where they're getting their electricity from, whether that's hydroelectric or renewable. Um, but then one always has to step back and think, well, is it a greenwash? Um, that for many years now, there's been a, um, a corporate social responsibility movement, CSR, and to some, really, let's be frank, it's um, kind of a bit of a tax wheeze, really. Uh, do you think people's attitudes are, are changing? Is there a, um, a sea change? Or um, are people just kind of greenwashing, really? I think there's something in the air. I think people are realising that they need to boxes now it's still just ticking boxes but it's not a box that's optional for many at the moment we've been doing some work for the bbc recently and we were involved in a 10 retender for something which i can't discuss but you know a good you know, quarter of the tender discussion process was about environmental issues and they take that very seriously and of course then that means that everybody who then wants to tender for the BBC has to take that very seriously and then every subcontractor the people that tender for the BBC wants to take it very seriously not because again they're marvelous people but because they want these contracts and it's very easy for somebody at the BBC to just say look I've got the pick of the world and either you tick this box or you don't and if you don't tick this box guess what you're not getting any of my contracts and now imagine how many big organizations say that, and then suddenly you have to take that very seriously, and it's no longer just the cherry on the top. So I think we are in an interesting position. We, we, we did it because we decided that we could early on. It was the right thing to do, and we had this extra land that we wanted to use in interesting ways. I happen to have a sister-in-law who works at an environment agency, so we said, what do we do with it? She explained the sort of rewilding you can do, and voila. Now... What's interesting about that is it's not just the use of the green energy that I think is the most important aspect of what we do. It's the use of the extra land because really ecosystems are very important for the native flora and fauna, things like pollinators and so on. And almost every um, data center, semi-industrial organization or whatever that, that isn't in the middle of a city center will have some amount of land available that it can then turn to these uses. And if you've got tens of thousands of organizations suddenly caring about that, you've got these green patchworks, or indeed they could become green corridors that could have massive effects. And these are the things that I think are, are far more interesting even than just saying, yeah, well, obviously uh, our data centers in the Fenlands and the Fenlands are the Saudi Arabia for wind. So why wouldn't we use that wind? You know, that's, 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 the, no, that's the no-brainer. Well, that's really getting on for all we've got time for today, which is uh, very unfortunate. Uh, Nick and I actually spoke for a, a much, much longer, uh, and hopefully, given the wherewithal, I'd like to publish that longer conversation, maybe on a, a, on a different platform or perhaps in series two of this podcast. But um, with thanks, of course, to Nick Mailer of Positive Internet. Uh, and thanks to you, the listeners. Uh, and I hope that you can join me for the next episode of the Tech Means Business podcast, where uh, we discuss all things business and all things technological. And I hope you can join me then. Bye for now.